Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, after a National Day of Prayer on Thursday, we feature Dr. Donald R. Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard was senior pastor at Calvary Baptist Church from 1976 until 1986. Donald Hubbard was laboring for the Lord at Boca Raton Community Church, Bibletown Ministries and Conference Center in Boca Raton, Florida, since 1987. He and his wife, Joy, have traveled widely in the cause of missions and have years of radio experience. Today's message is a word for times like these. It really is a joy to have Dr. Van Gorder here and Paul, welcome. Glad you're with us. Uh, you know, Paul, it dawned upon me as I sat back there looking over this auditorium that there's one thing we don't have here, a clock. You notice there's no clock in the back and there's no clock here on the pulpit. Brother, we're going to have a great time this week, aren't we? <laughs> Reminds me of the time when I was in seminary that R.G. Lee came to speak and he told about the time in his church when he took out, they too did not have a clock in the auditorium and he took out a vest pocket watch. Remember when men used to have watches like that? And he laid it down on the pulpit in front of him. And one of the men in the front row got up, came and took the watch away and put a calendar in its place and said, now go to it. <laughs> By the way, Joy has reminded me to give you a very special prayer request. I made mention of the approaching birth of our fifth grandchild. And she said, pray that it happens after Tuesday because on Tuesday she has two and a half hours that she's going to be spending teaching a pastor's wives seminar. The wives of pastors from all over that area are going to be gathering for two different sessions under Joy's teaching. And um, if Robin delivers earlier, I might be uh, having to have that assignment. So she says, pray that I don't know how to interpret that. I, whether, well, anyway, you pray for that. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. The book of Romans, chapter 8. This is an awesome time, a very solemn time in which to live in our country. The United Nations has declared that Saddam Hussein the forces of Iraq have until Tuesday night, midnight of this week to begin withdrawal of their troops from Kuwait. Saturday, yesterday, our president was given by a slim vote in the Senate, a larger vote in the House, authorization to wage offensive war if need be against the forces of Iraq. The president has said that while he does not have a publicly announced timetable, it will be sooner rather than later. Our Secretary of State, in addressing some of our Arab forcemen and women in the Saudi desert, has said that if the deadline is not met, that soon they would know what the course of action would be. We could be at war on Wednesday. The solemnity of this hour is echoed with the realization 
that some of you have loved ones in the Saudi desert. There are young men and women on both sides, Iraq as well as the combined forces in the Saudi desert who a week from today may be dead. War is a terrible thing. How do we relate as Christians to the crisis that comes to us this Tuesday? What do we have to say here in our little community to one another and to the world? How do we respond? In the NIV, the text says in verse 37, excuse me, verse 31, how shall we respond? The King James says, what shall we then say to these things? That's what I'd like to explore with you today. What is a biblical response in the face of the awesome times in which we live? What do we say to our community, to our neighbors? What do we say as Christians in an hour like this? In order to understand that, we have to stop for a moment and take a look at history. We have to understand a little bit about the people of Iraq, especially Saddam Hussein. We need to understand that part of the problem that is being faced today is that some years ago, Kuwait originally belonged to the country of Iraq. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to take out a piece of paper. I want to give you a little working outline of this particular passage and I want you to put it in your Bible 
And I want you to take it home and I want you to pray about how God would have you take this truth and put it into your life as to how you can respond, particularly as we move forward toward Tuesday and whatever that hour of crisis might be at midnight. Because what Paul is saying is that when you face heartache or difficulty or distress or problems of any kind or of any degree, at any time, at all times, there are at least three things that every believer must know. Now the believer needs to know more than just these three things. But if you and I have these three things inscribed upon our hearts, Paul says, then regardless of what the crisis might be, we will be able to respond effectively to it. But let me give them to you. In verses 26 and 27, the apostle says that if you and I want to be assured in this hour of crisis, we must know something of the mystery of prayer. Some way, somehow, though we do not understand specifically how, when God's people pray, God's heart is touched and the world can be reached in some way. And if you and I are going to respond as we need to respond, we must know something of the ministry of prayer. More about that in a moment. Beginning in verse 28, the apostle goes on to the next great truth. Because oftentimes when you and I face difficult or perplexing moments in our personal lives or in our nation's history such as today, in order for us to be assured that we must know something about the mystery of providence. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And some of us are troubled about that text. There is a puzzle in the minds of many people about Romans 8.28. What God is simply saying to you is that there is a mystery in providence, but God knows what he is doing. And whether there is war or not in the Middle East does not indicate that God has abdicated his control. God is in control of history, for after all, history is his story. We must know something of the ministry of prayer. We must know something of the mystery of providence. And then beginning with verse 31, Paul raises seven questions. And he responds to most of those questions. And I think that what Paul is driving home to your heart and mind is that if we are going to be really a prepared people for war or peace, we must not only know something of the ministry of prayer and the mystery of providence, we must also know something about the meaning of promises. Because I want to tell you this, if war breaks out, many people are going to ask God for explanations. But what we need to do is to rest upon his promises. Because when you ask God for explanations, never forget that God is not obligated to give us explanations. He gives us promises. Let's explore this for a moment. Tuesday afternoon here in our chapel from 12 to 5, we're going to gather a group of people to pray. Paul says that if we're going to really have the responses we ought to have in any crisis situation, but particularly in our situation today, we need to know something of the ministry of prayer. And notice how he phrases this in verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for. May I isolate just three little words in here? We should pray. I know that the text is saying that there are those times in our lives when we as believers do not know how to pray. 
that the ministry of prayer sometimes eludes us in the choice of words and sometimes our hearts are so burdened that we find it difficult to put into words. It is at that moment we are told that the Spirit of God takes our prayers and presents them to the Father. But I want to remind you that what Paul is saying here is that sometimes in the ministry of prayer we are confused, even as believers. Because when we pray, we are reminded of the statement made by the Lord Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, where the Lord says that your Father knoweth what you have need of. So even before I pray, I know that my Heavenly Father already knows my needs. Now, if He already knows my needs, why pray? Because the Father has commanded me to pray. Jeremiah 33, 3, God says, call unto me. That's not an invitation, that's a command in Hebrew. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. In Luke 18, 1, we are reminded that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Did not Paul teach Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, when he said, First of all, I will therefore that first of all prayers, intercessions, supplications, the giving of thanks be made for all men. The first thing to do in any crisis at all times is to pray. God says we need to pray. Some way, somehow, you and I in our prayer ministry can actually touch the world scene before us through the ministry of prayer. That's what I call the prayer of the saints. But there is another prayer that's indicated here, and that's the prayer of the Spirit. Twice we are told, once in verse 26 and once in verse 27, we are reminded that the Holy Spirit who lives within us after our conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ, He also intercedes for us. The scripture says, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And then in verse 27, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Did you ever stop to think that you never pray alone? Even if you are kneeling by your own bedside and no one else is physically with you, the Spirit of God within you is taking those prayer requests and presenting them to the Father. In fact, the Spirit of God is taking your prayer request to the Father and conversely, He's enabling you to know the will of the Father so that you can pray more effectively. You have the prayer of the saints. You have the prayer of the Spirit. You also have the prayer of the Savior because we are told a little later on in this chapter, verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now the Lord Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand and part of his ministry there is to make intercession for you when you pray and even when you do not pray. It's glorious to contemplate that the Spirit of God who resides within me, the moment that I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, He took up a residency in my physical body that He makes intercession to the Father, and the Lord Jesus, seated at the Father's right hand, is also interceding for us at all times. Maybe now more than ever before, we need the ministry of prayer. 
I do not know why these events come upon us, but I have an idea. I have absolutely no idea whether or not we'll go to war. But I know that God is speaking to this nation by the shaking of our financial foundations. God is speaking to this nation by the disillusionment that people have concerning the political officials, both local, national, state, and national, and international, where the confidence level has been deeply eroded. We need a spiritual awakening. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if one of the things that God is not doing is that He's speaking to the Christian community through this crisis and He is driving us to our knees. That oftentimes we have a tendency in affluent times like we've just come through in the 80s to think that we can live independently from God and then suddenly we discover that things beyond our ability to control happen and we all are impacted by it. And there is a call to pray. And please notice that call to pray comes even before the matter of providences presented to us or the mystery of the ways of God in the world of men. And Paul turns to that now. He talks about the mystery of providence or to put it in more blunt fashion, why does God act the way he does in the world of men? We are told in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And so many times some of God's people have been deeply and sorely troubled about that, particularly when the Bible speaks in Romans 8.28 about what I would call the divine good. What's the definition of good? You won't get it out of Webster. Because you see, you and I take the word good and we apply it in terms of, uh, well, good health. It means the absence of pain or disease. A good income means a sufficient income to pay our bills and maybe to put a little aside for a vacation or retirement, a good income. People speak about having a good job, something that brings pleasure to them, or a good family, which means interpersonal relationships are in harmony. Oh, but the Bible does not use the term good in that sense in this context. Let me ask you to write another word in the margin of your Bible that I think will give us more of the sense of what Paul is saying here in Romans 8.28 and what he is simply saying is that we know that all things work together for godliness. Good in this context means godliness. And what Paul is simply saying is that while individual events may in and of themselves be not good. In fact, they may be positively evil. God has a way of taking these things that are evil and harmonizing them so that you and I become more godly. Look, war is not good. Crime is not good. Disease is not good. Poverty is not good. There are many things that confront us in the world in which we live today that are not good. And by no stretch of the imagination does God say for the believer to pretend that they are good because they are not good. But God can take these things that are not good in and of themselves and in God's own way sovereignly to harmonize them so that what is produced in the life of the believer is a greater sense of godliness 
And God is going to take the events on Tuesday, whatever they might be, or Wednesday or Thursday, whenever that time comes, and God has that as part of his purpose in mind. It's what I call the divine good. But why? Why is it necessary that young men and women may die in a desert thousands of miles away? And these are questions that are being asked not only in the United States, but all around the world. Why is evil? Could not God zap Saddam Hussein? The answer? Yes, yes he could. He could also zap you. <laughs> or me. Why doesn't he do it? Sometimes the ways of God are mysterious. And we don't have an answer for them, except this. We do know that God not only speaks in Romans 8.28 about the divine good, God also speaks about the divine goal. Did you know that God has a purpose for every one of his children? And that purpose is given to us in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image or the likeness of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I want to share with you today that God says there are going to be many brethren in glory. And God thinks so much of his son, the Lord Jesus, that God is going to people heaven with those who are spiritually like him. And that means you, and it means me. And what God is saying is that he's getting us ready for heaven. Sometimes he has to shake the foundations a little bit for us to realize that this temporality that is around us is simply that, temporal. It does end, it comes to a conclusion, but there is an eternal state, God says, where we shall be conformed to the image of his Son or the likeness of his Son, and that will be eternal. So what God is doing in the world today is partly in order to achieve his purpose in your life and mine that you and I might be more like the Lord Jesus. And by the way, that's going to happen. What you need may not be what I need. What God uses to bring you to the point of greater surrender to Jesus may not be what God will use with me, but the purpose is still the same. That the Father is going to take war in the Middle East and it will be according to His divine purpose and it will accomplish the purposes of God for God is in the control of history. And God says that someday you and I will be conformed to the image of His Son. Now look around you. Physically, we are different. But Paul says that one day Spiritually, we will all be like the Lord Jesus. By the way, we'd better learn to get along with one another down here. Now, there's a third thing that I want to share with you today, and that's the divine guarantee about this matter of the mystery of providence. How does it all come about? Now, here, let me be a little technical, and I hope it'll bless your heart. You got your Bibles open? If you underline your Bibles... Let me read through a couple of verses again and have you underline and let me share with you a truth that is not there in the King James text, but it is in the NIV text. 
Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good. I'm reading verse 28. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, underline the word foreknow. He also did predestinate, underline the word predestinate. I can hear somebody saying, you're leading with your chin, Pastor. Foreknowledge, predestination. Verse 30, moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also underlined called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Underline the word justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Underline the word glorified. Every word that I have just asked you to underline, foreknow in verse 29, predestinate, verse 29, called, verse 30, justified, verse 30, glorified, verse 30. Each one of those verbs is in a past tense. Do you know what that means? What that means, since that these are in a past tense, is that God sees already all these things as already having taken place. Look, for whom he did foreknew, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That word predestined, by the way, is a word that many people really have a problem with and a lot of theological controversy has been developing over the years about uh, foreknowledge and its relationship to predestination and so on. May I remind you that this word means to mark out beforehand. It occurs here and also in Ephesians 1.5 and Ephesians 1.11. And if you look at those contexts, I think what you can say is that one of the aspects of predestination is that the Father has predestined that all believers will be conformed to the image of His Son. That's part of the guarantee. And the Father sees this as already having taken place. In fact, when He says, we've foreknown and we've been predestined, then we've been called and we respond to that call. Then we have been justified. We are declared righteous. You will never be more righteous in the sight of God than you are right now. Not because you are actually righteous, but because the Father sees you through the righteousness of Jesus. And you can't improve upon the righteousness of Jesus. And then in anticipation of what that day will be, then the Father says He already sees us as glorified, so we never have to worry because all we're waiting for is the Lord Jesus to come and to unveil our glorification. Man, that's enough to make even a Baptist shout hallelujah. <laughs> and that's the Father's guarantee, war or no war, peace or no peace. God says that He is working in this world. You may not understand it. And you and I may not be able to puzzle out His ways. But as the songwriter has said, when you cannot see His hand, trust His heart. Because you see, one of the things that you and I must understand is the mystery of providence. That nothing... Nothing 
happens to a believer, but what it is not first filtered through the love of God. And he is central in our experience. There is no salvation apart from the finished work of the Lord Jesus. There is no salvation apart from him. No church, no dogma, no ritual, no liturgy can save. Only Jesus Christ can save. So Paul says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us, you and me, all things, all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God justifies. Who is he that condemneth? Paul says, hey, it is Christ who died, yea, is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You talk about somebody condemning you? Christ is alive. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul goes on to say, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No, he says, verse 37. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. May I ask you to write three things down what Paul says in this latter part about the meaning of promises? If I understand scripture correctly and I repeat myself here, God is not obligated to give me an explanation for what he does, either in my life or in the Middle East. But I'm not to look for explanations. I'm to rest on his promises. And God has given us multiplied promises in this blessed book. And when you think of these seven questions that Paul asks and then answers, you have to respond by saying we are more than convinced. Look what he says, beginning in verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? And all these things he says in verse 37, we are more than conquerors. Verse 38, for I am persuaded. More than convinced. The NIV says we're convinced. We don't need anything more than God's promises to convince us of who he is and what he wants to do. We are more than convinced. We are more than confident. He says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing. Nothing above, nothing below. No other of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than convinced. We are more than confident. And thank God we are more than conquerors. For he says in verse 37, no, in all these things. Can you say that? If war breaks out in the Middle East this week, can you still say, I am more than conqueror through Christ? Because we are. Don't let any doubt erode your faith. Don't let any discouragement endanger your faith. Don't let any defeat overcome your faith. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith 
This is a time for us to believe. And this is a time for us to say to our neighbors, to our fellow citizens, let us pray. And let us see what God is doing in the acts of history. And why as believers we are more than conquerors because of Jesus Christ. No, I, I do not know what's going to happen this coming Tuesday or Wednesday, nor do you. But of this I am confident. That prayer and God's purposes and God's promises will stay the course. In fact, if you think about it, put your thinking cap on. If you think about it, prayer and God's purposes, understanding them, and God's promises will give you direction and keep you from going off course. Let's pray. We need you, our Father, more than any of us in this room can imagine. We need you. In view of the uncertainty of this hour, I pray. I pray for our new friends who may be worshiping with us today but who do not know the Savior. May today they become aware that Jesus died for them and that Jesus wants to come into their lives and Jesus wants to forgive them. May there be an openness of response to your love today that in this awesome and solemn hour that there might be those in our midst today who will say, I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. And for those of us who know you, our Father, help us to know that you are our help in ages past. And you are our help today. And God grant that in these times we shall so let our light shine that people will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. May there be a sense of total dependence upon you, our Father, a confession of sin, a turning from sin, a desire to walk with God, a spiritual renewing. Shake us, Lord. Bring us to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald R. Hubbard. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.